there are a number of constraints on a CISO's capabilities. And those constraints can range from culture, institutional approach, funding, buy-in from stakeholders, internal politics, maybe your network and security team don't get along. You know, so there are a wide variety of elements that need to be coordinated for a CISO to truly accomplish their goals. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Lisa, welcome to the show. I know that Kavitha from Zscaler introduced us, so I'm very, very excited to have you on the show today to talk about something that a lot of people are talking about in the industry specifically. So I'm keen to sort of get into your thoughts, your advice, and your ideas on the matter. But before we dive into that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please talk our listeners through where you started to where you are now. Thank you. Yes, um, lovely to be here. I started off as a medieval studies major out of college and really focused on medieval and Renaissance culture. I realized that isn't necessarily the most common background for a cybersecurity career, but I would argue that it actually gave me a great foundation for thinking about cybersecurity because the study of history is the study of systems, political systems rather than technical systems, but still. And it's the study of human behavior and the factors that affect our behavior. When we look at my journey through IT, um, I started out work study in college in the computer center help desk, graduated from college and thought, you know, I could have a career in computers and a hobby of medieval studies, or I could have a career in medieval studies and a hobby of computers. And I like regular meals, so I went with the career in computers. (laughs) When we look at cybersecurity in particular, I kind of backed into it. I was very interested in Linux and some of the do-it-yourself ethos early on, got involved with a local dial-up ISP, started doing internet security services, as a extension of my work there and really started out on the managed service side. We had a colo, a hosted colo network that got hacked because one of the users didn't secure their hosted web server. And then due to our failure to secure the environment, that attacker was able to spread a little in the colo. And that was my first experience with cybersecurity, frankly, and worked with the local authorities to help track him down. There were things that I could do that they couldn't, and I could share information with them more directly. And I really got interested in what makes people choose to attack a system What can we do to defend these systems? And more importantly, how can we build systems that are easier to defend? How can we approach an IT environment in a way that makes it as usable as possible for the authorized user who just needs to get their job done and doesn't want to deal with all of these controls and mechanisms and complexity But at the same time, we build an environment that ensures that the administrators have full visibility and granularity and the security of the environment itself, its resources, and the people who operate in it can be as seamless as possible. So I am currently Senior Director of Transformation Strategy with Zscaler, and my focus here is on zero trust. Zscaler is a cloud-native zero-trust exchange, protecting anything from user traffic outbound to the internet and software as a service, publicly accessible services, user traffic to private applications that you don't want to publicly expose, whether that's in the data center or on a cloud provider for infrastructure or platform as a service, 
We protect workloads that need to communicate with each other so it's not limited to user-driven traffic. And we offer visibility and granular control across that entire ecosystem. As the transformation strategist, my role here is to be a little bit of an interface between people and technology. There are so many changes happening, and especially over the last 18 months, this has by far been the biggest technological shift that I've seen in my 20 mumble years in IT. And helping our customers navigate first the rapid push to send all of our users home for their health and safety, the safety of their communities, figuring out how to enable remote work across use cases and scenarios that never really were envisioned for it. And now as we start to come back to the office, going through again, this transformation from everyone teleworking to whatever comes next, the modern workplace, whether it is a hybrid workforce where some users are on-premise and some are remote, or whether it's a hybrid workforce where users in the office two days a week and working from home three days a week, we really have an opportunity to rethink what cybersecurity means and how users access resources, how we can leverage these systems, these zero trust systems to enable user access rather than getting in the user's way. It's a little bit of a long answer, but I hope that's what you were getting at. No, I like long answers. I like tangents. I like all sorts of things. Now, I think a lot of the things that you spoke about is quite interesting. I myself fell into cybersecurity, so we definitely have that in common, as probably a lot of people fell into security as well. One of the things I sort of just want to press on a little bit is people and technology. So where do you think people are sort of at with everything that's happened in the last 18 months to two years and, you know, the hybrid working from the office now, working from home in Australia? Uh, I'm based in Sydney, so we still have a major lockout going on here. So we are sort of even mm-hmm. backwards a step that we, than we were a year ago. So I'm keen to understand, like, how how are people sort of approaching this situation at the moment 18 months on? I'm going to answer that from an enterprise standpoint rather than from a societal standpoint, because right now I'm a little frustrated with how society is approaching it, honestly. But from an enterprise standpoint, I believe that we are still finding our way forward in a lot of ways. There are organizations that have just declared as much as six months ago that they're going full remote and they're never looking back. And so these organizations bit the bullet did what was necessary, enabled remote work, not just from a technological standpoint, but from an interpersonal standpoint, figuring out how a team can maintain cohesion, how you can onboard new employees, how you can give a user access to resources. How do you get them an onboarded laptop when they've never come into an office and they never will? So there are a lot of challenges to that. And organizations that have gone through that journey and come out the other side may really see no benefit in going back. And then the other end of the spectrum are organizations that have said, we want to get as many users back on campus as quickly as possible. We want to go back as close as possible to the way we were before the pandemic. We are discouraging remote work to the extent that we can under the current health and safety constraints. So you've really got a full spectrum there. And I think the organizational culture, how an organization thinks about what the future looks like can really be shaped by whether that organization was already thinking about modernizing IT, was already thinking about a digital transformation, whether they are more forward-looking in terms of technology adoption, or whether they have a fully mature, very well-established security stack, very well-established processes, and they want to continue those processes as long as possible. And I will say that while there are advantages and disadvantages to both of those approaches, we're seeing a lot of success among the organizations that have used the pandemic as a forcing function to perhaps drive some of these changes that they may have been thinking about kicking the tires on for months or even years, every crisis offers an opportunity. And it's not in any way to belittle the incredible impact of the pandemic on how we work and how we interact with each other. 
But many organizations are taking this opportunity to rethink how they offer resources, how they protect resources, how they enable new scenarios and even entirely new business offerings. And so cybersecurity has to evolve in a way that was already happening. Because this is not new. That's the other thing. The move to cloud started this conversation. I mean, even before that, the first laptop started this conversation. The first point at which a user was able to take a computer home with them, work from home, need to connect remotely. You roll it back that far. This is why IPsec VPNs went from gateway to gateway only, evolved into a client to gateway model. Then you spin forward a few more years and we start to see SSL VPN arise to address some of the complexity and challenges of a client to gateway IPsec VPN. And then that technology kind of stalled out for about 15 years. And in those 15 years, more and more users are leaving the building. More and more applications are moving to the cloud. So I believe that our environment was ripe for a new approach to application access and application security. Yeah, I totally agree with when you were talking around crisis cambering opportunities and forcing the function. There's definitely been a few people on the show that have, have again, the same thoughts. So one of the things I want to talk to you about now, Lisa, is your definition of zero trust. What does that mean to you specifically? Now, I ask this because people have varying views on how they they think of zero trust, and I want everyone to be on the same page today as we talk about it. So I'm keen for you to present the understanding of these terms so everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. Certainly. I will start by saying I'm not a huge fan of the term zero trust. It is shorthand for zero implicit trust, and it is very much tied to a particular concept that was introduced over a decade ago. So if you think about the scene when the original term was coined in the No More Chewy Centers white paper by John Kindervog, at that time, we had remote users coming in over a VPN. They were coming through a choke point that could offer visibility and control, although whether people took advantage of that is an open question. And the alternative was on-premise users who, by and large, you didn't have that visibility and control on the local network. It was fairly rare to see network segmentation. It was fairly rare to have visibility of everything a user could touch when they're sitting at a desktop on a LAN connecting to an application in a data center. So the original meaning of zero trust was zero implicit trust for a user who's on a known network versus a user who's not on a known network. We want the same level of visibility and control for an on-premise user that we have already or have the potential for to apply to a remote user. And there's a couple problems with that. First of all, I think that zero trust is the wrong perspective. It's not zero implicit trust. It's figuring out what trust we can extend based on what context. And secondly, obviously this world has changed and an on-premise user connecting to a local resource is only one of a huge range of use cases that we need to address that fall into similar category. So to me, I would say that when someone says to me, zero trust, the words that I automatically fill in in my mind is context-based least privilege access. And then we go from there to for whom and to what. So this could be an end user accessing a resource in a data center, an end user accessing a resource in a cloud environment, an end user accessing a resource on the open internet, and now you've made a shift from protecting the resource to protecting the user. And then if we take another step back, it isn't necessarily just user-driven traffic either. We have workloads that need to communicate with other workloads. So you may have an application in a cloud provider that needs to talk to an application in a data center or on another cloud provider. You may have a piece of IoT or OT operational technology that needs to communicate with a backend system for telemetry or uh, instrumentation. And all of these 
workloads, all of these workflows need the same thing, context-based, least privileged access. So when you say wrong perspective, people sort of have the wrong perspective of zero trust. Do you believe this is where the disconnect sort of comes in about people's understanding about zero trust? I think so, because when you say zero trust, you're starting from a negative. You're starting from zero. And I would prefer to start from what we have. And I do think this is one of the obstacles to implementing zero trust, because people think you need to get that zero trust is something that is monolithic. or and, and frankly, to some extent, it used to be because of the tools we had to apply. But I would flip it around and say, what context do we have? What level of trust can we safely extend? So you may have two different users. One of those users is a third party who needs access to a set of resources. And the other one is, let's say, a network administrator. So that third party, it's a pretty good bet that you know who they are. You know specifically they are a HVAC vendor that needs to get to the web interface on this Liebert, whatever. They're coming from an unknown or untrusted network. They're coming from an unmanaged device, a device that you don't manage. So this user to these five things, we need to ensure that they can't see anything else in the environment. And we probably want to ensure that the data they're accessing never ends up on their device because we don't control the device. That's a very granular level of trust. On the other hand, you have a network administrator who says, I have always been able to SSH to any switch or router in the company, and I haven't had to keep a list or keep it updated. I can SSH to any IP address in our entire internal IP space. So, you know, question one is, is that really ideal? But you don't have to even start there. You can say, okay, we will give you, as a network administrator, the ability to SSH to anything that we haven't explicitly identified you shouldn't. Like, there isn't a reason for you to SSH to the finance server. So it's a much broader approach, but you still want to identify things to exclude from that permissive approach. And so I think when you start with zero trust, it makes the problem sound a lot harder than it is. We don't have to get to zero. We have to start from zero. So we start without any knowledge. Then we layer on, it, it's not zero trust, it's additive context. How much context can we apply? How close can we get to a truly granular policy? How close do we need to get to a truly granular policy? That's why I dislike the term zero trust. I think it starts you from a negative and thinking about the hard part. And I would rather start from a positive and thinking about what we can do with the information we have. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's sometimes where a lot of the misunderstanding comes from when I do see people talking about it or they're still questioning about how this all works. But what does zero trust mean truly, though, for a business, for executives that are listening to this podcast, they've heard their team talk about it, they're still not quite sure about what this means for them from a business context? I think it means a new way of thinking about access rights. If you start from the perspective that the network is open and you have to lock people out of everything you don't want them to see, that can be an enormous task. It gets bigger the more complex your network is. If you start from the perspective that you have this person and they need to accomplish this role, and you just need to figure out what they need to touch to accomplish that role, that can be easier, especially if you have tools that will help you discover that. If you have tools that can be configured in a permissive fashion that will then accumulate logs and data about that user's activity, and then you can go to a back-end interface, a back-end SIM, a back-end log correlation engine, and say, show me everything that Jane has done in the last three months, or show me everyone who has RDP'd into this server in the last year. You can start to build policy, one use case at a time, one user community at a time. So you can really apply the principles of zero trust more modular in a more modular fashion. And that means instead of saying, we're gonna have this enormous strategic initiative 
to get our entire environment to zero trust over the next five years, you can say, I want to ensure that this third party's access is fully visible and fully granular in the next two months. You can create a phased approach where you start with the low-hanging fruit. You work on the problems that are easy to solve first. I'm a huge fan of figuring out what you can do quickly and easily and doing that first while you gather the data to tackle the more complex problems. And so zero trust, to me, if you think about it correctly, it can enable an organization to stop thinking about security as a gatekeeper and start thinking about security as an enabler. If I can enable this user to connect securely to these resources, what business practices can I streamline? What new initiatives can I support? What ROI can I accelerate after M&A, for example? So you can look at hard business problems to solve where IT security has been seen as overhead, adding complexity, adding cost. And you can really start to flip that perspective around and say, how can security add value? Yeah, you're absolutely right. How can security add value? So you mentioned before, quickly and easily, like the low-hanging fruit. Would you be able to explain potentially some examples that you have in your head when you think about doing things quickly and easily and low-hanging fruit? Certainly. Let's say that an organization has a traditional IPsec VPN, virtual private network. It connects an endpoint to a network when that user is not on-premise. And they're having some challenge with that VPN. Maybe that challenge is congestion because they've got 100% of their employees on it now instead of the 40% they started with. Maybe that challenge is visibility. Maybe it's granularity trying to write ACLs on that tunnel. But if an organization can look at that VPN environment and look at the risk that it introduces, because one inherent element of a VPN is an open inbound listener waiting for a VPN client to connect to the VPN gateway. That is a publicly exposed attack surface that could be subject to denial of service attacks. It could be subject to targeted attacks. I don't know how it is in Australia right now, but in the United States over the last 12 to 18 months, probably not coincidentally the time of the pandemic, we have seen a number of alerts and warnings from our uh, cybersecurity defense agencies, Department of Homeland Security, um, CISA, DISA, basically that nation state actors and private attackers have been targeting VPN gateways because frankly, they're a fat target. They're sitting at the edge of the network. They have to be waiting for connection from the outside world. A lot of these are technologies that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years. So your code base is, let's just say mature, complex, possibly aging. And you have to patch all your holes. The attacker only has to find one. So what we're seeing is that organizations are recognizing the risk that a VPN poses in addition to possible pain points like latency or complexity. So you want to start to think about an access method that is better suited for this world of cloud and mobility that we live in today. Low-hanging fruit might be to take your user who's screaming the loudest. VPN is slow. I'm having trouble accessing my applications. The restrictions on the VPN are preventing me from doing my job or starting new initiatives. Maybe they're trying to go around it. Maybe they're trying to turn it off, introducing their own levels of risk. So one piece of low-hanging fruit is to find the user who's most unhappy and let that user be the pilot for your alternative approaches because they're a motivated user and they're probably got a pretty clear idea of what they would like to be different or better, which means they're probably going to be a pretty quick judge of whether an alternative solution is actually an improvement. So one way to look for low-hanging fruit is to look for pain. Another way to look for low-hanging fruit is to look for green fields. You acquire a company. You know, in the past, we would go through a long, drawn-out, multi-step process. You need to integrate the two networks to enable their users to connect to your applications, your users to connect to their applications, so you can really start to, to 
see the value of the acquisition. And that means you have to pull circuits to get the two networks connected. That can take weeks, maybe even months, but you need that time because you need to do a security hygiene assessment, figure out whether there are any gaps. You probably need to do an IP addressing assessment to figure out whether there's any overlap. And so by the time you get the two networks physically interconnected, you have this complex structure of NAT, proxies, ACLs, multiple mechanisms at the boundary between the two networks. And the worst part of this is it's intended to be transient. You only want that up there until you can merge the two networks fully. So you're building all this complex effort just to tear it down weeks or months later. So we look at that and we say, if we didn't have to interconnect the two networks, if we could just give users access to applications, we can bypass all of that effort. We don't have to get circuits pulled. Security hygiene assessments still have to happen, but they don't have to be a gate on a very pinpoint access from this user to this resource. Setting up NAT is not necessarily a problem. If you're allowing users to connect by hostname, you may have overlapping IP space. A lot of people are on RFC 1918 space in their data center. If I have a web server on 10.1.1.5 and you have a file server on 10.1.1.5, a VPN that's going to connect a user by IP address is going to have to have a NAT somewhere in the middle. But if that user is connecting to web.parentcompany.com and it's connecting to files.acquiredcompany.com, it's not a problem. So there are a number of different areas where you can look at the problems you're trying to solve, look at the technology that you're considering as a new approach to those problems, and really look for areas where you'll see an immediate beneficial impact. So Lisa, you mentioned in some of our conversations, CISOs can't do what they want to do on their own. So what do you sort of mean by that statement? I mean that if a CISO could wave a magic wand, no company would ever get hacked again. Very true. It's clearly not that simple. There are a number of constraints on a CISO's capabilities, and those constraints can range from culture, institutional approach, funding, buy-in from stakeholders, internal politics. Maybe your network and security team don't get along. You know, so there are a wide a wide variety of elements that need to be coordinated for a CISO to truly accomplish their goals. And I personally believe that soft skills are as important for a CISO as technical background. I think that a CISO particularly can find highly technical people to give them good technical advice, but a CISO needs to be almost a program manager for the cybersecurity program for the company. And that means understanding how to speak to the CFO about the financial benefits, understanding about how to speak to the board about the risk reduction at a level that the board can consume, understanding how to talk to the global head of networking about why applying these security technologies will make the networking team's job easier as well. So, you know, the, the, the old saying, it takes a village is horribly overused, but in this case, I think it's true. You really have to get a number of independent and potentially competing interests aligned for a CISO to successfully accomplish their goals. I like how you raise soft skills because I still believe a lot of people devalue that a lot in terms of influence and generating that empowerment within your team and getting the funding with the CFO. Would you say in your experience, Lisa, that many still struggle with the soft skills when they are at that CISO level? I would say because in general, I believe that information technology in particular as a community, as a field, puts a huge amount of emphasis on technical knowledge, technical certifications, technical training, and does not, as an industry, generally put a lot of value or emphasis on communication on project management skills, on storytelling capabilities. 
So we hire for a certain set of attributes and we expect people, we, we believe that soft skills should be inherent instead of acknowledging that they are a discipline every bit as complex and every bit as critical as the technological background. I think that we would do a lot better in the IT industry as a whole, in the cybersecurity industry in particular, in some cases, if we recognized that taking it may in fact be easier to take someone with good soft skills and either teach them the technology or give them smart technical people to advise them than it may be to take someone who's extremely technical throw them into a politicized environment with a lot of moving parts and just expect them to magically know how to juggle that. It's extremely unfair to the person and it's unlikely to get good results. It's so true. I mean, I have this conversation with people on the show a lot and the issue that I sort of, they think about in my mind is when you've got someone that's probably really good at influencing, getting the funding, empowering their team, for example, but they're not super technical, would you say that their technical staff perhaps have a level of disrespect because they think, well, you haven't earned your stripes, you haven't been down the weeds like we have? Because I'm sort of hearing both sides to the equation. What What are your thoughts on that? Because it, it does get interesting with people that I interview on the show, their thoughts, their perspective, even people that I see in the industry, because I, I agree. I think more people need to have an emphasis on the soft skills. And I believe that they don't because they, in some elements, they favor technical uh, rather than the soft skills. But I mean, at the end of the day, if you can't tell your CFO why you need a million to $400 million worth of funding, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. I definitely think that the disrespect of people without technical skills is a problem. I think in some cases it's earned and in some cases it isn't. If you have someone who has good soft skills and comes in and doesn't recognize the necessity and the value of good technical advice, that's the same problem in the opposite direction. Um, Simon Wardley had a great thread on business and security talking past each other. And my key takeaway from that is both sides must respect each other for a successful partnership. And if either side isn't willing to extend that recognition and extend that respect, then frankly, that party is setting the partnership up to fail. Wow, that's interesting. So you're sort of saying that you believe, or what Simon Wardley sort of talking about is potentially someone with soft skills has come in and then disrespected the technical people. Is that what you're saying? I think that happens. I think that people with technical skills disrespect the people with soft skills. It's a it's a bi-directional problem. And really solving it is about finding people who are willing to work together in good faith and willing to recognize the value of the skill set that they don't have. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, I mean, you're probably the first person that I've spoken to on the show that has said it from the other direction. So I'm, yeah, definitely interested by that point. But something else that we sort of spoke about as well, and then you made a comment that I'd like to sort of get into, you can't manage and protect what you don't know. So would you say in your experience that many organizations are in this boat? Yes. I have worked with and for hundreds of projects, hundreds of companies that have been pursuing some level of cybersecurity initiative, whether that's something that I was directly contributing to which is obviously a much smaller subset, or where I was an advisor providing technological guidance or providing transformation strategy advice over the last couple of years. And the biggest challenge in a lot of organizations is scope of the project versus scope of visibility. I've never run across an organization and I think I'm comfortable saying this. I've never run across an organization that was comfortable telling me that they knew 100% of every asset in their environment, 100% of every user who needed to get to each resource. 
that's a level of context that needs to be intentionally accumulated organically. It does not generally just happen unless you're a five person startup and you were born in the cloud and you can push a button in AWS and get a readout of all of your expenses there. So anytime an organization has an existing ecosystem, the question is how much of that ecosystem is visible and how much of it is dark matter? How much of it is shadow IT? How much of it is things that were accumulated and not documented? How much of it is people solving a problem by working around the problem and then not documenting the workaround or, or worse yet, hiding the workaround because it doesn't follow policy, but it's what they needed to get their job done. The fundamental building block of zero trust is visibility. If you don't have a way to capture visibility into what is present in your environment, what is actually happening in your environment, it's very unlikely to me that you'll succeed in protecting that environment. And so the flip side of that is any security solution needs to not just be a, a solution for control, needs to be a solution that offers a sliding scale of control and the visibility to move that needle. So from your understanding, how do companies sort of work together so they can, they, they can protect what they have, like work with their security team, with the business to ensure that, that they're sort of getting that outcome? Because I mean, what you're saying before is quite worrying, but of course there needs to be a way forward or where can people sort of start? Absolutely. Let's take that VPN example. VPN technology 10 years ago was an open tunnel. You could see who was connected to the tunnel and when, but you couldn't see what they connected to. If you wanted to see that, you had to put a tap on the interface, the internal interface of the VPN, and capture that traffic as it entered your environment. That technology has advanced, you know, in some cases. Now some of the VPN solutions can give you logging of what traffic was sent through the tunnel as well as who was connected and when. But you're still only getting that particular traffic path. And in order to get full visibility there, you have to bring people into a single ingress point and then hairpin them to any other part of the environment. And very often, the user has to think about how they're getting to that resource. Am I on the VPN? Am I on the local network? So it's not a seamless user experience. It generally can add latency and complexity to accomplish that goal of visibility. An alternate approach would be to leverage some of the newer crop of access solutions that are distributed technology that allow a user to enter an on-ramp to a cloud service, for example, and then that traffic is delivered through that cloud service directly to the resource. We're no longer bringing users in through a single ingress point and hairpinning them out everywhere else. We're connecting them to a policy engine in the cloud that then picks the shortest path directly to the resource. So you can leverage these new technologies to help you move to a better understanding of the traffic that already exists in your environment, and then move beyond understanding to shaping that traffic. So when you say latency and complexity, do you think because of that, it sort of just acts as like a deterrent? People feel they feel overwhelmed by the whole process and as a result, do nothing? Absolutely. There's, there's really two causes for that inertia. One cause for that inertia is the complexity. You know, we've built this complicated thing and it's running on, you know, spit and bailing wire and there's a hamster underneath it somewhere running in a wheel. And if we touch it, it's going to fall over. And right now it works well enough that we're not getting yelled at. <laughs> so don't touch right. it. Right. The, other, the other side of that coin is this technology has been around a long time. We've spent... 10, 15, 20 years building a well-designed, thoughtfully constructed architecture 
to accomplish our goals with the technology that was available 10 years ago. And then we've continued to apply that technology as new use cases have come up. So we're very invested in that technology. We're invested in the knowledge that we have. We're invested in this complex system that runs like clockwork. And we don't see why we should change to something else because from our perspective, it does everything we need it to. Both of those, whether it's fear or pride in a well-oiled machine, both of those perspectives lead to an unwillingness to make a change, to an obstacle to transformation. And figuring out how to step out of that perspective and say, okay, especially for the latter case, yes, this does everything that you need it to do today, but what's the invisible cost of that? What's the technical debt that you don't see? How much time do you spend correlating logs across seven different components or troubleshooting traffic through multiple hops and multiple interfaces. When you need to add a new component to that service, how complex is it? When you need to add a new environment to your ecosystem, how complex is that? It's something that you're accustomed to, but could it be better? That's the kind of conversation I think needs to happen in those cases. Yes, you've built a really beautiful edifice, but is it necessary today? And then for the, the fear, that's a different question. And, the, and the, the real driver there is how can you start to experiment with an alternative technology without putting your existing um, terrifying Rube Goldberg system at risk? And that's where it's really critical to look at technologies that can be stood up in parallel, that can be an alternate traffic path without requiring changes to this complex thing that you don't want to breathe wrong towards. And I guess that's where the conversation about building innovation really does start from. Like, could it be better or people who want to see change to be something else? But how do we sort of as an industry find the balance between innovation, but also being secure at the same time? What would be your advice on that, Lisa? I personally would say stop thinking of them as things that need to be balanced between <laughs> I believe that absolutely that's the perception. And what I would like to see is a shift towards asking how our security technologies can enable innovation and how innovation can improve our security. Because there is that traditional triangle of fast, cheap, and secure, pick, yeah. three, pick two. You can never have all three. And that drives a lot of people's decision-making. It's an underlying assumption that doesn't often get pulled into the daylight and examined. But there are cases where a shift in technology delivery can render that no longer true. And I do believe that the shift towards cloud-delivered security solutions is one of those cases. We've been proving the value of migration to cloud for over a decade with application transformation. We know that cloud offers elasticity, resilience, flexibility for how we distribute applications. Is it really that much of a stretch to extend our thinking, to acknowledge that those benefits also apply to delivering security services via the cloud? But it takes stepping out of that sort of comfort zone and frankly, I say that because that was me. I came to Zscaler about four and a half years ago. And prior to that, for the previous 14 years, I started at NetScreen Technologies. We got acquired by Juniper Networks. I got spun off as Pulse Secure. So if you know those company names, you know what I was doing, Firewall, VPN, and NAC. The last five years I was at Juniper and Pulse after the spinoff, if anybody said cloud to me, I said, go away, possibly not that politely, <laughs> because to me, looking at it from my lens of delivering access to a resource, what I saw cloud as was taking a traditional physical security appliance, virtualizing it and running it in AWS. You're moving the venue, but you're not changing the problem. And so the cloud is just a 
bunch of servers in Iraq that you can't reboot, I did not, I couldn't see past that, to be honest. So you're speaking from your own personal experience. So you know exactly uh, this conversation and, and how people are sort of having this conversation in their mind, their own internal dialogue. Yes. And I probably would still be at Pulse if Manoj Apti, who was a previous colleague of mine at Juniper, had not reached out to me five years ago. He had moved over to Zscaler. He was actually one of the initial team that built Zscaler. He was the chief strategy officer when he reached out to me. So he and another colleague, ex-colleague of mine, Denzel, who was running the Zero Trust Zscaler private access project, they reached out and they said, you should come talk to us. We're doing remote access with no inbound listener. And my first thought was, if I didn't know the two of you, I would be blocking you from messaging me on LinkedIn, which is how they were communicating with me. Because this sounds like snake oil to me. But I did know them, and I knew that they were good people and sharp technologists. So I bit. I said, how in the world are you doing remote access with no inbound listener? And they described to me the ZPA architecture, where they take an application delivery component in the app environment. It makes a secure tunnel outbound of the cloud. They take an application traffic capturing component that makes a secure tunnel outbound of the cloud. They stitch together these two outbound connections. So it's almost like a hybrid of an encrypted tunnel and a label switched network. And I thought about that and it solves a lot of the problems that I had objected to in providing a remote access service via the cloud. And then it opens up all the possibilities of cloud that I had been frankly ignoring because that wasn't what I was focused on. The elasticity, the resilience, the flexibility. So I had to go through that disbelief and then questioning whether this was possible and then trying to poke all the holes in it and then wrapping my head around it. And then I came to work for a cloud company after five years of blowing off cloud as a technology. And I had a lot of catching up to do. You know, I took some of the introductory courses through AWS and Azure. I went and talked to people who were smarter than me and had made that leap sooner. But I remember what that felt like. And even going back before that, prior to working at NetScreen, I remember being the person who answered the pager when the VPN was malfunctioning. So I've been on both sides of the table. I've been on both sides of the cloud conversation. And the most important thing is I don't think anyone has room to disparage a person who hasn't made that transition yet. Everyone who is assessing technology is doing the best that we can with the information and the experience at our disposal, right? And so if I want someone to look at something through a new light, it's on me to give them the information they need to make that new evaluation. It's on me to share my experience, my background, stories I've seen in other places, connect them with people who've already done what they need to do. And so I think that pulling this back to your original question about the balance between innovation and being secure, I think that we don't get there by throwing stones at the things that we're trying to move away from. I think that we get there by starting from the commonalities that we have, our common goals, our common aspirations, our common constraints, and then looking at what that looks like if we continue where we are today versus what that looks like if we try a new approach and helping understand. I may not understand all the constraints applied to someone who's considering the technology that I support. So if I don't first really take a minute to listen to them, try to figure out where they sit and what they care about, there's nothing I can say that's going to land for them. And worse yet, I may end up making a recommendation that doesn't make sense to them because I didn't bother to understand where they was, were coming from. So how do we find that balance? We listen to each other. We find a common starting point, and then we explore outward together from there. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story because I don't believe a lot of people would be bold enough or game enough to, to talk about that uh, because some people are still very set, they're very against cloud, but some people are obviously pro 
uh, cloud. Uh, but I totally agree with your point. Like you don't need to throw stones at the person that hasn't quite seen the value in it yet, but maybe they will come around. So I guess it's about giving them the information that they need to to make those decisions. But my last question for you today, which which is interesting, it sort of is off the back of what you've just spoken about is, would you say that some people just can't see past a security first approach and then others can't see past an innovative mindset? And I mean, what I mean by that is if you've got like a traditional software engineer that they're focusing on like functionality and you've got a security architect that's very focused on this being the most secure application that there is. But would you say that because they're seeing it from two points of view that they they are struggling again with that balance or so they're sort of failing then to meet in the middle. We definitely see instances of that. And I love the particular example you used because that's exactly why an entire field has come into existence of DevSecOps. DevOps and security were traditionally at odds with each other in a lot of cases. And the entire model of DevSecOps was intended to bridge that gap to help people meet in the middle. I think that we need an equivalent of DevSecOps for application access security. I think we need to take the people who say, I need to be able to build something with no constraints, and the people who say, you can't do anything new without making sure that it doesn't pose any harm, and find that common balance the way that DevSecOps integrates security into the development process, we need to get, it's like getting respect between the soft skills and the technical people. It's getting respect between the security people and the business leaders, the innovators. AppSecOps, <laughs> access SecOps. I don't know what you'd call it, but we definitely need more of it. Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, I've been in that situation before where our development sort of area in the bank just hated us because like, oh, you know, you're, you're the police or you're trying to slow down what we're trying to do or we can't get live with that project and it becomes quite a political game then you got to navigate so it is interesting so I think DevSecOps is, is helping close that gap I don't think we're there yet but at least we've got something in place to, to bring the two together so that you know at least we're moving in the right direction so Lisa, I've absolutely enjoyed our chat today and your stories and your knowledge as well, and you being very open and honest about some of the things that you were failing to see in the past. So I really, really uh, do appreciate that. If people perhaps have a question for you that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about getting in contact with you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can uh, always chat me on LinkedIn or you can send email to me at my first initial last name at zscaler.com. Um, please reach out. I'm always happy to have this conversation. Awesome. Well, yeah, I really appreciate uh, your time again, and I can't wait to get you back. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation as well. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.